Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois here. And today we're going to be talking about the things that go bump in the night, so to speak, or at least the things that I tend to hear more often in the woods. Larger animals, maybe larger predators out there, some of the wildlife that we have to deal with. And as always, we have our trusty co-host today. We have Katie Parker, our local foods educator in Quincy. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. And we also have Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. Hope you both had a good 4th of July. I would say I enjoyed the hot temperatures under the umbrella on a deck, which was very nice. (laughs) And we also have a very special guest with us because... Me, Ken, and Katie, while we we do love the outdoors, uh, we do need a little bit of extra help here and a big knowledge boost uh, when it comes to dealing with wildlife. We have Peggy Doty. She is an energy and environment educator. Hello, Peggy. Hi. How are you guys? Oh, very good. And, and Peggy, where are you dialing in from today? I'm actually calling in from Sycamore, Illinois, in DeKalb County, so not too far from the Wisconsin border. Okay. So is it, I mean, right here, it's supposed to get up to like 91, feel like it's in the hundreds. Are you getting pretty warm up there too? Yeah. Our real feel right now is 92 and uh, probably 100% humidity. <laughs> oh, yum. That's, that sounds wonderful. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so it feels like summer has finally arrived. So, Peggy, as an, an energy and environment educator, or as, as Ken says, earth, wind, and fire. Um, <laughs> it's good. I like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, he works with Dwayne in his his office there, so yeah, Dwayne's got to deal with Ken all the time. Um, but in, in your role, can you give a little bit of a, a background, I suppose, on, on what is your job with University of Illinois Extension up near Sycamore to DeKalb County? So I am on the, on the energy and environment uh, team, statewide team, but I have a very unique position. We have a, um, a partnership, a financial partnership with the DeKalb County Forest Preserve in which they do not have an environmental education department. So they provide some financial support and a building rent free, um, which is huge. And we offer uh, environmental education on behalf of University of Illinois Extension and the Forest Preserve. Um, So I basically manage the Natural Resource Education Center. It's actually located in Genoa, which is north of where I'm sitting right now by about nine miles and we offer um, a lot of youth education in the form of natural resources so we do week-long summer camps in a normal year uh, we do and they're all they're all education thematic environmental education camps we do field studies for uh, school children public private homeschool in the fall and in the spring and we do winter ecology for schools willing to come out uh, and juggle uh, snow gear and, and such in the winter, as well as adult programming. And I do facilitate a master naturalist program uh, for us in the Boone to Calvin Oval unit, which is unit two. So but you nat- didn't know all that, did you? <laughs> that was, that, yeah, I mean. I'm a little different, yeah. Your yeah. position has always intrigued me too with extension. And and it's something I would love to have actually just a, a, another, have you on for another podcast too, just to talk about youth education and natural resources because I, I I've talked with Peggy several times on um, you know Peggy has helped me out quite a bit and as I 
kind of need a little leading about how to teach kids with natural resources. And Peggy, you've been just an absolute wonderful person to talk to about that. So I think that would make a great podcast in the future. So yeah, you're, you're already scheduled for the next one. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of natural resources education, what started, did, did you have something in your life that started you down that path? You know, where did it begin for you? I had a mentor, an elder, that had asked me that one day, and I said, gosh, I have no clue. But when I looked back, when I was um, a freshman in high school, I will not give the year, <laughs> my father, who was a World War II vet, he um, he went to U of I on, on his GI Bill and was an agronomist. And we opened a soil testing lab in our backyard, not far from Ken. Uh, Ken, I grew up in Beardstown, Illinois. And we had um, a soil testing lab. We owned, had our own... We, owned our own and at one, my dad believed girls could do anything and he said what do you want to do when you grow up I was a freshman in high school and I, I straightened myself up I said I'm going to be an auto mechanic and he said step in the house I'm like uh oh that was not the right answer so we went in the house and he sat me down at the table and he said Peg he said you can work on cars and make that as a hobby but I'd like you to go to college and get an education and, and be able to feed yourself and buy your own insurance I said oh Okay. I said, well, what else doesn't talk to you? He's, and I said, oh, wait, wait. I love animals. I love nature. He goes, okay, you can get a degree in zoology and you can get a four-year degree. Da, 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 da. Okay. <laughs> Are we done? And, and first, I, well, first I said to him, I said, well, I'll just, I could go to school to study animals. He goes, he, and I, he goes, okay. He said, do you want to groom the lion or scoop lion poop? And I went, I'm sorry, sir, what? He said, well, do you want to be the person who grooms or cleans up? I said, well, if those are my only choices, I'd like to groom the lion. He goes, then you'll need a bachelor's degree. And that was the decision made right there at the table. So I actually went to SIU Carbondale and studied zoology, uh, the field of wildlife management, and focused on fur-bearing mammals. And back when I was in school, fur-bearing mammals meant that you would trap and hunt fur-bearing mammals to feed your family and also to pelt them and get, you know, a secondary income because pelts had value back then. That degree, not so useful. Now I pretty much do wildlife management in the sense of um, my fascination now is the wildlife-human interface, which is exactly why I think I'm on today and how we as people... Uh, respond to the presence of wildlife in our life and uh, I pretty much focus all my personal work time on answering those questions at the state level. Um, I get quite a few a week actually. So, Peggy, I must ask, uh, do you work on cars as a hobby now? You know, I did until I got, until, you know, cars have changed. My first car was a 1974 Grand Torino Elite with a 351 Cleveland. It was the most beautiful car, but it had eight cylinders, eight spark plugs, but everything was A to B, B to C, and it made sense, and there was tons of room to play. Now cars are not easy to set up, you know, to get into. And I said to my dad, I said, I feel guilty, but I'm getting my oil changed by somebody else. He goes, that person has to feed their kids too. It's okay to go get it done in an oil change place. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so your, your journey in education, it reminds me a lot of, some reason I just thought of Aldo Leopold when you said that, you know, kind of as his journey from, um, you know, how he kind of first learned about, back then game management and then which is now 
more commonly known as kind of natural resources and conservation and then that type of stewardship uh mindset um you know did did you notice a, a shift at least in the education and then through your career and how we look at wildlife then to how we do now yeah you know when i studied wildlife truly it was a focus on managing game as built on you know 1933 when all the leopold was you know was discovering this management theory versus just shoot what you need to shoot and hunt what you need to trap what you need to trap and uh I kind of, I wasn't as familiar with all the Leopold because I went to school at the bottom of the state, right? And if you were closer to Wisconsin, you knew more about that. And as I evolved and started picking up pieces of that, I think as, you know, we all evolve. And as a human, as human nature, as we, he was concerned in the 1930s about the human population. And I think that's interesting because we're re-evaluating our land ethic today and we have to share it and we have to coexist. And I say we have to because our options aren't exactly um, going to change because every living thing, whether you're human or plant, which you guys know way more about than I do, your whole goal is to re reproduce yourself in order to succeed and be in existence. So it doesn't matter what we do, we're not going to make them go away. Um, and I think as he evolved into that, I've done the same thing and realized I never, I, my my master's degree is in education because it was clear I was going to have to educate instead of just do the science and do the theory because people don't read that. <laughs> uh, the general public doesn't read the, the science, you know, on some of those things. So I needed to be able to communicate those, those messages. Um, and uh, it was, it was lovely to see how Aldo Leopold transformed his, but kept that land ethic piece. And I think we need to continue to adjust our land ethic and be willing to share a little bit in order not to have the stress on ourselves that we create with our concerns, um, our wildlife concerns. Does that make any sense? That makes perfect sense. I, um, yes, uh, it sounds like it's straight out of Leopold, uh, Sand County Almanac itself. So that was just, that's absolutely lovely the way you put that. Um, and as you were speaking, you mentioned sharing this space you mentioned the desire for species to to reproduce and i have to ask because at this moment of time that we're at here in uh, illinois and also now missouri um, there is a black bear that has wandered from up northwards and from wisconsin down through our part of the state actually where i am in macomb he was just a few miles west of town um yeah. bruno the bear you know Peggy, is he trying to reproduce? What or is he lost? What's well, happening? Here's the here's a couple of things that, and I don't know. These are strictly my personal, you know, based on what I know about bears and my personal theories. Um, this is by no means, you know, set in stone. So generally, generally in the spring and early summer, we see um, mountain lion young and black bear young traveling out of their general normal spaces. Mountain lions are pushed very far south and have been in this part of the state um, down by you. They've, they've fought, once they hit that Illinois River Valley, they pretty much just take the Illinois River Valley all the way down by you know Jersey, Pike, Calhoun, all those counties down there, and then they head back north again because those riparian habitats are their elongated versions of what they need. We don't have enough 
property. Uh, we have about 14% of the state of Illinois could hold a wolf pack, sustain a mountain lion. Uh, black bear have a better chance in southern Illinois or in that northwest corner by Joe Davis County. Um, Bruno, if you look at him, he's got a what, we, what I would call a wide triangular face. So if you look at him, he looks a little husky. Right. So if he were your typical two year old that mom said, hey, I'm about to have more cubs, you're out. And the, these two year olds are like, I'm sorry, what? You're out. Well, I'm just going to stay. No, you're not. You're leaving. I've got babies coming. And so they start to wander. The male black bears, the, the juveniles, they don't look like Bruno. They usually look kind of like they're skinny, kind of lean. They haven't filled out as much. And Bruno weighed in supposedly at 350. So number one, I don't think this is our typical wandering bear, which was kind of led to believe this is odd behavior. Well, it is because we're used to these two-year-olds who kind of go a little ways from home and go, uh, yeah, I'm going to go back. Or, uh, I don't know, there's no girls right here and I've gone far enough. About 100 miles is usually their max. And the reason we haven't naturally populated black bear down where I'm, you know, up here where I'm at, one, DeKalb County is useless. It has cornfields. It doesn't have trees. But that northern, northwest corner of Illinois would be perfect. The problem is the girls don't go more than 10 miles from their mom. So the expansion of the black bear population is very slow. The boys leave. No girls. They go home. So Bruno's weighing in substantially more than um, a typical traveling this time of year bear, which leads me to believe he's older. Part of me wondered at first, before you know they figure out where he was from, part of me wondered if he was actually from Missouri and snuck around and went up the back way and then got seen and said, eh, I'll take the easy route home. You know, who knows? I, they, they seem to know he's from Wisconsin. But I think he's a larger bear. He's obviously healthy. He didn't hurt anybody, which is very typical. Um, and he just did his thing. The biggest thing, when we had a bear go through DeKalb County, the sheriff called me and said, am I telling people the right thing? Just let the bear be a bear? I'm like, absolutely. And I said, well, if we get the first one through here, the next one won't be near as exciting. We're not used to seeing them, but their, their initial home range was from the middle of Mexico all the way up to Alaska and all the way from the Pacific to the Atlantic. These animals used to just live here. They don't need to come back. It would be nice to have a, you know, some predator variation in our food chain. But it's interesting to me that he didn't find a place to stay. And now with their nose, he might have gotten within range and went, oh, now I know there's, there's other bears. There weren't a lot of bears in Missouri and they were almost completely gone, if not gone. And in the 1950s, we dropped about 250 plus black bear. I say we, the IDNR and the Conservation Department. Now there's bears in every county south of St. Louis in Missouri. There's populations. The problem is they're not crossing the river like Bruno took a swim. They're not coming. The girls aren't coming over to southern Illinois. So Bruno's kind of atypical. I think he's... Um, I think that we talked about it, and I think that uh, some people already know he was tranquilized. He was in a small town of about 1,900 people. I don't know what he was doing, but I really truly feel that he probably should have just let the bear be a bear and kept seeing where he was going to go, what were his behaviors. And maybe, I mean, he was probably cleaning out hummingbird feeders, drinking them, and um, eating bird seed out of bird feeders, you know, having his way with honey, with uh, beehives. They'll do that as well. Um, so he's a little bit of an odd duck. I'll be interesting to see if they do any kind of DNA testing on him to see, you know, and 
what, what was the purpose? Who knows? You know, why do any of us, you know, do the things we do? But the other thing is now we've given him a name. So now we've anthropomorphized him. So now whatever happens to him, and now he's in a secret location. And of course me, I want to know where that is. So somebody's got to want to know. Um, I'm sure he's well cared for. Um, but I don't know if they tranquilized him to figure out information about him. I would have liked to have seen what he did if he stayed or just kept going. So. Yeah, I was very curious about his journey. I'm like, yeah, when I heard they tran tranquilized him, I thought, oh no, what, like, what if that, and then they obviously move him. And then. Right now, yeah, his behaviors now have been altered. Yes. You know? yeah, yes. His like, destination has been changed. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I, we don't get to know what Bruno would have done next. You know, he, we, he now has to make a choice based on where he's been put. Yeah. In 2009, we had a bear, a black bear male in a culvert in Bureau County. And then in the next year, and that one was, was tranquilized and taken to a, a black bear permanent resort, shall we say, I think, in, in Wisconsin. And then the ne within the next year, there was a, a photo of a female, assumingly female, with a cub in the same, in Bureau County. And that's not most like, and the, the male knew what snacks were and pop. Somebody popped a pop can and he was like, oh, yum, yum, yum. And they're like, oh, he's a pet, right? He's been illegally kept. It's very possible that female was uh, a maiden bear with that male and the, and the cub. And then they just, nobody ever found her. So somebody probably scooped her back up and took her back home, wherever the home would be. Um, but that's it. I mean, they've wandered in and out. But usually they go back to Wisconsin on that same call with the sheriff. Um, he said, wait, Peg, I got one more question. I said, yeah, what's that? And he said, I called Wisconsin. And I said, yeah. And he goes, they don't want him back. And I said, well, think about a very, very large raccoon. We really don't need that back, right? And he's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But they have plenty, you know. Um, I, I, we'll have them in northern, uh, with, uh, northern Illinois in the not-so-far-future, but we, we just have to get those girls to go farther from their moms, right? <laughs> so what kind of habitat would Bruno be looking for? I mean, if he's looking for a female, but uh, also in terms of the, the landscape around them, what, so, what do they want? As a as a relational answer, so in the mid 1800s, you know, we lost um, our elk left. Well, when the elk leave, the wolves were like, guys, hey, the lunch is leaving, you know. So they left with lunch because we didn't have a large white-tailed deer population, believe it or not. The elk kind of kept our white-tailed deer in check. So the wolves left with food. The cougars left um, with the with the the pressures of you know human existence coming and things were changing on the Illinois landscape. Our prairies were actually expanding a little bit. We were losing some of our, you know, our forests that were contiguous. We're often those riparian areas. As we came as humans and built our homes as we deserve to do as a species, those breaks in the forests became pretty big and bears like to have cover. They don't want to be out in the open, although Bruno didn't seem to care, right? Um, but in a breeding situation, to breed and, and uh, for cubs to be born, they're going to want some contiguous forests. People found out black bear was edible, right? So there was n n Native American hunting, you know, uh, European hunting. The pelts were valuable. Those pressures pretty much extirpated. They did not become endangered or extinct. They extirpated. They were, you know, generally heading out, and that was just the final push. Um, so 
they're going to seek that thickness. Think about that Southern Illinois Shawnee thickness and that riparian and uh, ravine area of the Mississippi up in the northwest corner. Perfect for all three of those apex predators that we no longer have in permanence in the state of Illinois. The, the wolves, the, you know, the gray wolves, the otherwise known as the timber wolves, um, the mountain lions, and the black bear, the American black bear. I was, I was doing a little research for, it was a master naturalist um, training on, I think it was uh, urban land, or no, uh, urban rural landscapes mm-hmm. and th- that, that interface with uh, mm-hmm. the wild. And I remember reading McDonough County, where we're at, was the last documented wolf population. Yeah. And yeah, they, they were just as you said. Yeah, they left with the pressure. with the elk. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is I saw in our local paper after I kept stating, you know, the last wolf was seen in Illinois on this date. And then in the paper I read uh, the historical page, and I can't remember the gentleman's name in DeKalb County, walked into the courthouse in DeKalb County with a dead wolf and a ripped up jacket mm-hmm. and wanted to be paid for the jacket because he went out in the barn, the wolf was there, the wolf jumped and grabbed his coat, he shot the wolf, and he wanted money for his coat. <laughs> And it was much later than the assumed last one. But we have to remember, they would have still tried to come back in, check it out. Nope, still not okay, right? So there wouldn't have been just an exodus with a door that shut behind them. It would have been a a slow, steady, you know, trickle out of the way. And the pressures would have been too high. And and again, 14% of our state for a wolf pop, for a small wolf pack is all we have available. And it's not like just southern Illinois. It's spread out down that Mississippi, you know. Cougars need, you know, a male cougar, they think. Different different studies say different things. A male cougar, uh, the minimal home range is 70 square miles. Wow. So that's a lot of spread, and that's how we ended up with them in, you know, in uh, Chicago, because they're looking for a place. They don't yep. find it, but they're still on the on the move trying to figure it out. We would get, uh, when I was at the Missouri Botanical Garden, we would get things like foxes and sometimes coyotes that would come in downtown St. Louis, and they they just follow the, the railroad tracks. And, mm. you know, they find a place like a botanical garden or a large park like Forest Park, and there's plenty of squirrels and possums and all kinds of things for them to go after, and not nothing really to go after them. And that's that was a heaven for them. Yeah, definitely. And, and we, you know, we pretty much, everything a coyote is, we created. We opened up agriculturally and industrially, and where people and, and agriculture is, rodents are, right? So we just, like, set up a fay line clear up to Alaska. And they, they said, okay, thank you. I, I can do this. <laughs> they're more willing to coexist than we are, I'm afraid. Um, but they're, they're not, wildlife is never random, ever. It's purposeful, it's food, water, shelter, space, place to breed, places to hide and be safe. Um, it's a life range need. And if that life range can be met on a city lot in downtown Chicago, then so be it. They don't judge. They don't care if it's a luxury home. They don't care if it's my little ranch house, you know. Um, they don't judge. They just survive and they just acclimate. Um, and that goes for anything, down to a mouse. You know, mice come in your house because they feel warm air coming through a crack, and there's free food. So where do they tranquilize them at? I hadn't heard that you had been tranquilized. It was a little town, um, and I want to say I had 1,900. That's why I was really shocked. It wasn't like downtown St. Louis where he could have been hurt. 
Ellsbury, E-L-S-B-E-R-R-Y, the city of 1,934 residents, 60 miles northwest of St. Louis. He was almost there. But in Missouri, they now have a large enough bear population. They're considering uh, having a hunting season in the future. So um, it's not like he was really special down there. He was just another bear, but I, I can't imagine that if he really was out of Wisconsin that the genetic exchange wouldn't have been wonderful. Um, mix and match some genetics. I heard a couple different stories. So I heard he was tranquilized because he was in an, in an industrial park and he didn't know how to get out or something like that. And he would try to leave and he couldn't get out and they just thought he was becoming too stressed and so that's why they tranquilized him and then i and then i also heard that and this kind of makes sense but i like i said i'm learning a lot from you so uh you probably would have more information with it but i also heard that he was originally from tennessee and he was a nuisance in tennessee and so they transported him up to (laughs) wisconsin And that he was traveling back to Tennessee. So that makes more sense to me than anything else so far. You know, okay. for him to go that distance, um, that that makes more sense based on what they've done so far, Katie, right? So we don't know for sure. We can't ask the bear. I'd love right. to. Know. <laughs> but that to me, because see, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not. I I still wondered if he was from, you know, we all assumed Missouri was his destination, right? Because there's black bear there and not in Illinois. Um, But, you know, that makes perfect sense. And not that he wouldn't have stopped in Missouri, maybe gone to Branson or something. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I, that like I, a short I love, vacation. Yeah, I love hearing <laughs> that because in my mind, the way they have worked so far, that makes more sense to me. Because their ability to navigate and get back to where they want to be, that makes way more sense to me. And he's huge, right? Remember, he's, he's not just a two-year-old, which is, a, which is what I think they were basing it on when you read this is odd behavior. It's odd behavior for the, for the two-year-olds who are getting kicked out saying, go find your own space. Okay, no, I don't like it here. I'm going to go back and sit in a corner in Wisconsin until nobody notices and I'll hang out here. He didn't. He didn't do that. And he, yeah, I like that idea. He I seems like very docile, though, from, like, what I've seen from pictures and things. He doesn't seem too irritated with people yeah. being close to him. So I didn't completely understand maybe why he was a nuisance for Tennessee. I think when people don't, well, think about this in our human world, too. When you don't understand something, you make up what you, you know, you 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 turn that around like, well, I'm not comfortable with him because we don't get it. Right. We don't know what they're doing. I don't know about the industrial park thing, unless they had trees and stuff. Cause they're the picture of him asleep. He's, you know, tranquilized. He's in some trees and some natural cover. Um, but I like the idea that he was from Tennessee. I don't know if that, it'll be fun to find out. Right. So. Yeah. Hopefully we get some information. Now I that do... they've, captured him yeah i do like that people made an effort for him to travel safely right they stopped traffic they (laughs) they did they went out of their way to get him that far well i i really do want to ask the question about moving wildlife but i know i think we have one of those questions here uh from from a homeowner here later on so maybe we'll i'll 
we'll yeah. save it for then because I know I, I, I know that a lot of people are very wary about actually moving wildlife. A lot of uh, scientists mm -hmm. and yes. experts in that field. So um, we'll save that for then. And I, yeah, we're going to be following Bruno here uh, for the next few few weeks, maybe months. We'll see what his what his journey goes. Maybe he winds up back in Tennessee uh, to play with the old bear band down there. So we don't know. Huh. Um, but we do have some homeowner questions that have yep. come in. So, um, uh, Peggy, if you won't mind just lending us mm -hmm. your expertise here to help us answer some of these questions. Some of them are, are common questions that we get in the extension office. Um, and so you, you, you might just be thinking, you know, here, here we go again, just the, the good old deer question, which it's here. Trust me, the deer question's coming at you. All right, so first question we've got is from Champaign County. Um, and somebody has rabbits eating their garden. What can they do to keep them out? So that's a, that's right. Those are like miniature deer, right? They're the same thing. So, you know, gardening and rabbits never go well, but also shrubs, planting new plants. I have some plants I'm trying to get in the ground, but I haven't had time to build complete dome cages for them. You really, fencing is about with rabbits, and I'm talking fencing down into, even down into the ground a little bit. Though they're not tunnelers, you know, they'll still squeeze and dig around to try to get under fencing. Rabbits are, rabbit populations are going to go up and down based on predator-prey relationships. So if you have a high hawk population, um, coyotes, nobody, a lot of people don't like coyotes, but they really help with the rabbit population, foxes. When our when our numbers switch back and forth this year, we have an extremely high prey population. So the rabbits are looking for tasty food. There's not a lot of things. There's You can go online and they'll tell you many things you can sprinkle on them, like cayenne pepper mixed with crushed pepper. But think, you know, you have to be very careful with your own face and hands. But if you do that, every time it rains, you have to do it again and again. I always recommend if you're going to plant a garden and um, to, to fence it. For rabbits, it doesn't need to be super high like it would be if you had a massive deer issue. Uh, but fencing is really the, the saving grace when it comes to rabbits. And I seriously am wrapping my new shrubs with uh like a type of chicken wire and pinching it shut at the top. I'm just going to keep it completely, um, completely from being chewed on. And in the winter, you know, if we get any kind of snow, those rabbits chew at the level the snow is. So you could have a, a shrub that you lose at two feet high because they're going to chew it off at the snow, at the snow level. But when it comes to gardening, um, minus trying all kinds of, you know, taste offenses, but they're going to go to a different leaf. They don't know that you care. They don't know it's yours. And when they taste something that isn't good, they're going to go on to the next plant that maybe you didn't get enough on. Um, so I know that doesn't make anybody happy. Um, I have a gardener. We have a pollinator waste station. It's called the Monarch uh, Mayfield Monarch Waste Station that we put in here to teach uh, native pollinator classes and such. And the gardener gets so mad at the rabbits and I said well we could always during season <laughs> have a potluck <laughs> so people don't like to hear that either right but they are um, a fur-bearing mammal that is um, edible um, and go great with salad the old Mr. McGregor technique I like that well you know they were there's plenty of them and people don't want to harm them, but they don't want them to eat the garden. So really you have to put a lot of work in to raise a garden in the presence of 
of the Lagomorphs rabbits. Um, you just have to really do your your work and not assume that you're going to just convince them otherwise because they don't know that you didn't. They just think it's fancy plants. They don't know that you planted it. And I can say in, in Jacksonville, at least in my neighborhood, we seem to have an unusually high number of rabbits. Yeah, this, year. this is an extremely high prey year, which what that means, all the birds of prey and coyotes and foxes, those populations aren't maybe as high as they usually are, but the succession of this year's offspring throughout the winter is going to be extremely high. So next year and the year after when we have this high predator population, which brings different phone calls for me, right? Um, then the high predator population has to eat and those numbers will then come back down. And then we're like, oh gosh, that's great. We had rabbits, but now we don't have any. So next year we shouldn't have to fence, right? But then again, then you're gonna have that switch. Not enough food the next winter, not enough prey, animals die off. Many of our, many of our predators don't even reach their first birthday. Um, it's just too tough. And so this kind of assures that we will have those that eat the things that annoy us, but then we'll have hawks that eat people's chickens, right? So ebb and flow. Okay, next we have a question from McDonough County. Raccoons keep coming back and trying to get into our attic. What is the best way to trap and relocate the raccoons? Katie, this is a perfect question for you. I think you're going to love this. You get an old radio and you find talk radio like NPR. NPR is good because it goes to BBC at midnight and the raccoons do not like the Brits. So you literally can hang Put a hook in your soffit and hang a radio, run an extension cord, and play talk radio 24-7. Or put it on a deck or anywhere nearby. If it's on a deck, I put rubber tubs over it, which one, protects it from the water, but two, also makes it very mumbly, like there's even more people. And if you leave that radio on, not so high that your neighbors are annoyed, but you might want to let them know because they'll think there's people outside talking as well. And raccoons will leave. They do not. They'll move babies out of an attic. Um if you put on talk radio and leave it on. So again, animals aren't random, right? They're getting everything they need, food, water, shelter, space. If you disrupt that, and you can even add a light, like a um, some kind of an outside light or even some kind of a light you could stick up in a soffit. They hate, they hate that. So you want to disrupt um, their life range needs. And then, and especially in the case, it doesn't work for anybody else, but raccoons do not like talk radio. So Peggy, this was a, a question I was curious about. I know a lot of people, you can buy these live traps and folks will then just drive these wild animals out into a, a countryside and, and drop them off. Why is that typically not an accepted practice? Um, most of it, most animals that you would do that with, are it's illegal to do, it's against the law. Um, Potentially, one, potentially of you getting harmed with an animal in a cage is, is pretty high. Two, and most importantly, that animal has, we treat animals as if they're going to know what to do um, in a new location because, well, I have a backyard with trees, so I'm going to take it out to a forest. Any park, forest preserve, natural space, public natural space, you cannot take wildlife to those spaces. Some places... Um, if you get a permit, a nuisance permit to remove an animal and, and you get the permission of the landowner, you can take an animal to it, but I never recommend that because animals that live in certain areas have different immunities maybe to different diseases or they carry a disease. And if you take that animal into an area 
that doesn't have that disease, you could wipe out everything else in that area. Now to some people that, well, so who needs all those raccoons? Well, the problem is we have a food chain and those, those animals are part of keeping that, that food chain level. And if you don't have omnivores and if you don't have scavengers and things get out of, out of whack. Uh, but the biggest thing for me is, is, is changing the population dynamics. Every land, every piece of land, even your yard, has a carrying capacity built into it depending on how you garden, how you lawn care. And whatever that carrying capacity is that can max out, that's normal. If you start throwing in extra bodies of different animals, you're going to send that into some form of a catastrophe. Um, with raccoons, they carry um, distemper and can get distemper. So if you have a great red fox population, say in a forested area, perfect, healthy, and you throw one raccoon in there and it happens to have distemper and none of them had it, you're going to wipe out every fox, coyote, raccoon right off, right out of there. Um, so really it's a disease is my concern personally would be the disease factor. The other thing is how cruel is it to take an animal from its home and dump it 30 miles away in some other home that somebody else is and they're going to get, they're going to get beat up. They're going to get attacked. They're, there's territories established already. So you're actually just putting it out there to suffer in a very horrible way. Um, that said, there are nuisance animals that can be destructive and need to be removed, but you need to contact the Illinois Department of Natural Resources and get a permit or find a professional person with that permit that removes nuisance wildlife. But you must know that chances are it will be euthanized. I have a lot of people that say, I don't want it to die, I just don't want it here. Well, you have to pick. You either need to coexist with it and think about how you can change your lifestyle or alter the habitat so they naturally leave or know that it's going to be put to sleep. A lot of our um, permitted wildlife nuisance people will ask you if you want the animal removed alive versus having it exterminated on site. It's a sad thing, but again, you're anthropomorphizing. So it's an animal. It's not an, if it's not an endangered species, it's destroying your property. It's a tough decision, but it's better that it's a tough decision. We shouldn't be able to just pick and choose who we eliminate. And you, I just think taking it anywhere else is probably the cruelest thing you could do to some animals. That's a personal opinion. All right. Um, our next question uh, is from Champaign County. Um, and someone there has a groundhog that has taken up residence under their garden shed. Are they, are they safe to be around, um, and what should they do to try to get rid of it? I love this question because they are asking if it's okay to leave it there. And it's not an attack animal. Of course, you don't want to start feeding it or petting it or anything. And yes, it dug a pretty big hole. Uh, when the males come out, they usually go closer to a, a more forested edge or a, a creek edge for the winter where they can hide a little better. And then when they're out looking for girls, you know, they want to build a nice house in the nice open yard. Um, so whether it's a bachelor or not, um, that hole that they dug can be filled in later. Um, but if they, if that person can coexist with that animal for a season and then deal with filling that hole in later, that's 
that's what I would do just to have something different to watch in my yard. But I'm also not a lawn person. I don't have a, I have a yard, not a lawn. I, I have green stuff. Uh, green stuff counts as lawn uh, in my yard. But then at the end of the season, in order not to invite winter skunks, uh, other animals next year, you can fill that hole in once they're gone this fall and move back out, you know, to a tighter location. If you notice they're gone, fill it in and then take hard wire, um, some form of a hard wire and then dig down probably a foot, maybe even 14, 15 inches, bend about four inches of that wire and make an L shape, a 90 degree L shape, put it down in there and bury it. Uh, and you could, I mean, if you really didn't want them ever to do it again or any other animal, you could do that along the whole length of the shed. But I would just do that particular spot or a little bit wider to deter them from, from some other animal finding that loose dirt, you know, that you fill back in and digging out another den. And if you have pets, um, that might be another issue if you have dogs um, and they would confront the animal. Groundhogs do climb trees, which a lot of people don't realize they're arboreal. We call them groundhogs for some reason. If you're from uh, southern Illinois and below, you might have heard the term whistle pig. I went to Kentucky for my apprenticeship and somebody said, yeah, be careful you don't fall in that hole right over there that a whistle pig made. And where I live, pigs are, I lived um, near an Oscar Mayer plant. I'm like, our pigs don't whistle. It was the most strange conversation. Like, no, you know, the the rodent that digs a big hole. <laughs> so, so if you get a whistle pig and you can live with it, great. If you need to trap it, you need to get a permit. You have to have a removal permit for woodchucks. And um, their preferred food are apples. So if you have an apple tree in your yard, you could attract them. Doesn't mean they'll dig a hole in your yard, but you very well could find one up in, a, up in your apple tree once the apples are are large. They don't eat them all. Um, and if they're not digging a hole in your yard, there's really no reason not to let them eat them or toss them further away from the tree and they'll go wherever the apples are. We have another question from McDonough County. Um, so they've noticed that the coyotes are not as timid anymore and they seem to be getting bigger. They howl at night, which seems very close. A few weeks ago, a neighbor scared off a pack stalking his dog. Are they crossbreeding with other dogs or wolves? We have kids and worry about them. What can we do? Those are a lot of questions. That's my whole coyote program, I think, right there in one question, Katie. Um, <laughs> so coyotes are not necessarily getting bigger. Come winter, they will look huge with all their hair. They still average 35 to 37 pounds, average meaning you can find a bigger one and you can find a lot smaller ones. Um, but 35 to 37 pounds is still our average coyote. They are not currently breeding with wolves in the Midwest because wolves, the, even the ones that trickle into the state and go back up, um, they still kill coyotes territorially. Up where the coyotes are north in the wolf territory, they're dead if they get caught by a wolf. Um, there's no breeding going on uh, at this time. They're still not living they don't coexist well. Uh, they still compete to, uh, for space. And though the coyotes don't take down full-size deer, there's still um, there's still territorial uh, reasons why they why they don't exist together well. So they aren't necessarily less timid. They're they're learning to adapt. I was wondering. This is a side note to this coyote thing. 
When we went into this virus shelter in place and shut down, as I pondered these ideas, because I had great horned owls across the street where I could see them from my house and could watch the young owls being raised by their parents, all of these wild animals this year that were being born in the spring into summer were being born into an almost silent world compared to what we're used to. The traffic is low. Uh, the night lights are low. All the things that our adults have adapted to and were born into don't exist. It was it was like the 1970s in April, you guys. The, there, the cars were minimal. People were out in their yards talking to neighbors across the yard. Everything was quiet. And once it got nighttime, people were just kind of in their houses. And it made me wonder if the young animals, especially like coyotes that are in your yard all the time, whether you believe it or not, they are in your town. They live next door. They live in your gardens. They're everywhere. Um, but it got quiet. So now I have people calling me, even our extension peers. So there's a coyote that goes through my yard every day and my dog barks. And I said, yeah, he probably does that every day that you're at work, but you're just never home to see it. It's just his path. So the coyotes, like other urban wildlife, kind of got used to it being their space. <laughs> and now we're like starting to come out of our hibernation and we're, we're seeing all this and we're noticing this. They can be territorial. I don't like the word pack when it comes to coyotes because pack leads us to believe that they are socially organized and that there's genetic differences. So coyote groups, if you want to call it a pack, it's really a family group. So you have the, the parents, you have a dad and a mom, you have usually a teenage daughter, and then you have pups. Now the teenage daughter may eventually take on a male counterpart, but they often then don't breed until they leave and start their own family group. They'll keep a female from a litter, a past litter, uh, the mom and dad in their territory, because then when they have pups, there's somebody to watch the pups my mom and dad both eat, because they mostly, 90, I don't know how much of their diet, is rodents. They bite and swallow. And then they have to regurgitate, of course, you know, um, for the pups or chew it up a little bit. The coyote pups start eating meat at three weeks, so um, it doesn't take long. But they have to feed them all, right? So where are most of the rodents? Wherever there's garbage. Coyotes aren't eating the garbage. They're eating the mice coming to the garbage. Where else are there rodents? Agriculture. Spilled beans, spilled corn. Where else are they? Near your house, especially in the fall and winter, because there's heat radiated off our houses. The mice graduate, you know, across the yard and end up at our bird feeders and then against the foundation. So though now we have mice in our fence rows and along our houses. So the coyotes are like, well, dinner moved, we move. So a lot of their behaviors to them are normal. Um, they will, they can be aggressive with dogs, especially more more so during breeding season, January, and then pup season through March, because they've got youngsters and they're trying to protect them. They're not stalking them to eat them, but they might be in that territory concerned. So you walk your dog on a leash, you know, until they're done being hyper-protective and the kids are grown up. Um, little dogs absolutely can cause trouble because those little dogs won't stop barking. I have a small dog that will not be quiet. I walk him on a leash at night in my fenced-in yard because he would be the first one to go because for whatever reason he goes out that back door if he's not on a leash and just barks off into the darkness all the way around the edge of the fence. He's just asking for trouble because the coyotes hear a canine barking when you're supposed to be quietly hunting. They're breaking canine rule and they want that dog to be quiet. 
And if you up where I'm at, we see it on the Chicago news all the time. And the people are holding their dog alive. These little dogs, they've clearly had some shaving done to, you know, put medicine on the bite wounds. But if the coyote wanted to eat that dog, you'd never find that dog again. Because canines, coyotes, foxes, they grab one thing. If you have chickens, they grab a chicken and leave. They don't kill all your chickens. They grab one and go. If a coyote wanted your dog for food, you'd never find that little dog. What you find is a dog with injuries because he wouldn't be quiet. They, I will say they do take cats. Cats must taste better, sadly. But um, the pups, they usually leave them. They just want them to be quiet. Uh I don't know that they're getting bigger. I think in our minds they're bigger. In my mind, if I come across a coyote, they look bigger to me than that. But they're very tall, too, um, which makes it seem bigger. And the howling, every coyote sounds like three coyotes. So when you have a, a family group, a family pack of 12 coyotes, you might only have four. But they make so many. I always compare them to the Waltons at night because they'll talk over here, they'll talk over there, and then they'll call each other, and especially in the spring when there's puppies because there's one teenager with all those puppies. You'll hear one adult bark, you know, bark and howl, I'm done, I'm full. You'll hear the other one say, yeah, me too, where are the pups? And you'll hear that third one, usually a panic howl, like, I am here, get home now, I can't take it anymore. These guys need to be fed. Um, so are, can they be dangerous? Anything with a mouth can bite. That's why we should be all afraid of our children, right? Um, and we need to be aware that they live amongst us. But to anthropomorphize them and say they think this, they want to do this, can they? You know, we just have to be very, very adamant about our management. Coyotes don't have a manager. Every human being, every neighbor, every one of us on this podcast are coyote managers. You, If you see a coyote, you should haze him to no end. We want coyotes to always know that humans are scary, right? Because they're comfortable and they adapt so well. I know that was a very long answer. That's all right. I am afraid of my kids sometimes. So. No, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know this about you. <laughs> I tell that to kids when I'm teaching environmental education. They're like, well, does it bite? I'm like, anything with a, with a mouth can bite, and that's why I'm afraid of you. And they just all smile. <laughs> that's kind of scary, you know. All right, we've got one last question for you, and this one comes from Knox County. Um, so we have deer that have eaten all of our hostas and are destroying our arborvitae hedge, and they live in town. Um, what can they do to stop the deer from eating everything? Yeah. Oh, the deer questions. Um, my first answer wants to be nothing. You know, there's so the deer population in some communities um, has gotten really high. If I may, part of the problem is. The IDNR manages our deer population, and they take a lot of heat for not managing it well enough if we own hostas, right, or managing it too well if we're a hunter. But they don't have access to more than like 7 or 8% of deer habitat to manage it. 92 or 93% of deer habitat is in private hands. So our poor IDNR is like trying to manage deer on the smallest possible pieces of property in the sense of quantity. Uh, and our deer populations, they double every, like every other year, they double. Can you imagine? So there's, 
somebody said, well, plant, you know, you guys would know better than I do as far as what plants are deer resistant. That's so silly. I love that idea. But if then your whole neighborhood plants deer resistant food, then they're going to be like, all right, well, this will be, this is all we get. This is what we're going to eat. It's kind of like when you sit down when you're a kid and you're supposed to eat whatever's on your plate. If you're really hungry, you just kind of hold your nose and eat. Um, I love the idea that there are some things they don't like, but then you can't tell your neighbors because you need them to go eat the neighbor's hostas and the neighbor's food. Um, fencing is seems ridiculous to me. I read something where they said put up tall fencing to keep coyotes out. I don't know what fence you're going to put up that a coyote wouldn't climb across unless it had razor wire at the top. Same with deer. If they really want something, you're going to spend an awful lot of money on fencing. Uh, it's that coexistence thing. You can talk to your uh, city council. You could talk to um, the county. I don't know, you know what it's like in Knox. And start talking about better deer management outside of the city. Uh, because once those deer are in there because they found easy food, the deer population outside of, of wherever they're at might be pretty high. It might be in private hands where there's no deer management or no hunting allowed. It's the same um, up in uh, Galena. They had a huge, they had a huge deer population problem, and they have gardens that they sell tickets for people to see for the tourism that comes to Galena. And these deer were just mowing them, and they had to call that herd. They had to have specialists come in and thin out that herd. And what they didn't realize they were going to have to do was they were going to have to annually or biannually do that. They were going to have to allow some of those animals to be called out of the herd in order to, you know, reduce the amount that they could destroy. So some of that's going to have to probably be an overall management plan. I recommend management plans for everything from bears, cougars, wolves, foxes, coyotes, deer, for every city to have a plan where everybody got to talk about it. The problem is you can't bring in, you know, hunters in town for obvious reasons, but you can manage populations outside of that space in order to not have the deer feel like they need to move in. This doesn't answer how to stop it from eating a hosta. It tastes good. The arborvitae, I am not a horticulturalist. I hadn't heard that one, but that can't taste good. I'm just, that's not, I don't know. <laughs> Seems like that wouldn't be as tasty. Hosta to me reminds me of like leaf lettuce. Um, but you can, you could put up sprinklers that are motion censored at night so that they get a shot. Um, some people do lights, but after a while they realize there's no response other than the bright light. So then you're going to lose some plants eventually because they're going to be like, yeah, last time this happened, nothing happened to us. But water is really rude, especially on a sprinkler system that's a direct heavy spring, you know, like one of those, mm, those bigger ones that you see it in a bigger lawn spaces that, that um, I'm doing a hand motion, you can't see it, but those kind of sprinklers, the ones that shoot out a pretty hefty stream, um, that might be about the one thing that would really <clears throat> help that wouldn't be too cost, too high a cost is just a, a sensor sprinkler that would shoot them with water, um, or the lights could come on and the water, you know, but then you're asleep and all of a sudden the water's coming on and the lights are coming on, so... It's, it's hard, and coexistence is a big, a big, a big change we'd, that you'd have to make, and things you'd have to give up would be maybe too hard, I'm not sure. I know my, my microphone's been muted 
uh, a lot of this, but Peggy, this has been delightful. I have been laughing and giggling so much just <laughs> listening to you. So I wonder, I'm talking with my hands, and I'm just out here just <laughs> spinning left and right. And I'm like, hey, I'm so glad you can't see me because I'm I'm just like da 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 da. I get a little bit soapboxy, right? Because I love this stuff, and yeah. Well, this has been uh, just absolutely delightful, Peggy. And if I, I would like to plug one of your webinars that you've done recently, it was on uh, backyard bird habitat. Oh, uh, it was on the your um, sure. on the four seasons. Oh my yeah. gosh, I think I've listened to that two or three summer. times. Oh, why would you do that? Oh, it's great! <laughs> I love it. Oh, if folks want to hear more about this, I will leave a link to this webinar. And Peggy's done so much more too. But um, yeah, I, you know that's just one thing recently that's that I have been watching uh, of Peggy's. Huh. I'll have to go look at it and see what it is you see. <laughs> <laughs> so also, um, uh, Peggy, you manage, um, or you have, have helped out with a, a revamping of our Living with Wildlife here in Illinois website. Um, it is a great resource. I share this out quite a bit to a lot of folks that, that call in with questions on, on wildlife problems, issues. Um, you, uh, do you have the website link for that uh, yeah. you could share with folks? It's it's simply wildlifeillinois.org. They made it really easy. Wildlifeillinois.org. Yep, it's a, a wealth of information, and so uh, Peggy, we we do thank you so much for for taking the time to to be here talking with us. I learned a whole heck of a lot, um, and you know this has just been a, a great time. That's fantastic. Well, I had a good time too. It was nice to have a social <laughs> activity today. So thank you. All of you. Certainly, yes. And um, as always, folks, uh, we will leave our contact information down in the, the show notes. Uh, and if you want to contact Ken, Katie, or myself, please, our emails are there. If you do have questions for future shows, you're more than welcome to get in touch with us. And as always, thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ken, for being on the show today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Peggy. I also learned quite a bit. So this has been just just loads of fun. I don't, I'm Peggy, you have to come back. That's just how it all is. I mean, we'll, we'll see you next week, right? Maybe so. that's all I knew. <laughs> Maybe I'm out of information now. <laughs> Impossible. Oh uh, so, well, again, and thank you, of course, always to our listeners for listening to the Good Growing Podcast. And as always, keep on growing.